Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. I thought I would read some of your emails, so let's get into it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This first email is from patron Ash. She writes, I was just reading a story in the Washington Post about a woman who left her baby in the trash where it then died. This seems to happen not infrequently. What's the psychology of leaving a live newborn in the trash as opposed to anywhere else, like somewhere the infant might be found and cared for? Even if a woman doesn't want her child, why not at least give it a chance at survival? I just can't imagine it as a soon-to-be mom myself. End of email. Yeah, this is a rough topic, so if you're not into that, I would skip forward 15 or 20 minutes, I would say. Um, No joke. So, all right, well, I actually wrote about this when I was writing a piece on evolutionary psychology because I came across some evolutionary psychology uh, research and hypotheses around why parents would murder their own children. So I just thought I'd read, and this is available on the website, um, our website. In applying evolutionary, so at, at the odds, before I go into this, I'll just sort of cut to the end a little bit here and say that we just don't know why people do this. We don't know why we sleep at night. We don't know why we dream at night. We have speculations, but we really don't know. We don't know why people eat too much or why people will kill people. You know, why, why did Ted Bundy kill a bunch of people and a million other people with the exact same genetics and the exact same background and the exact same worldview growing up in the exact same culture? The, the million of other people, they didn't murder anybody. Why did Ted Bundy murder all those people? We don't know. We don't have the ability to know that as of yet. It'd be like asking someone a thousand years ago, you know, how does an atomic bomb blow up? It's just completely inconceivable to them and, and is to us. We, we have ideas and we're, we're, we have ways of looking at it. We have ways of conceptualizing enough that might be able to give us some idea of what to do. It's not like we're completely in the dark. But to really answer the question, like, why does a apple fall from a tree? We know because of gravity and relativity and all that stuff. Um, but And we can mathematically describe it and predict it and stuff. When it comes to parents killing their children, we can't. We can't predict it. We can't say, okay, with these factors, then the parent is going to kill their their child. We might be able to say it raises the risk, but our ability at predicting this sort of thing is extremely um, just not there. I wouldn't. Even, I was going to say limited, but it doesn't even exist. So, again, there are probably some factors that we might be able to point to. But anyway, so let me read my piece here on evolutionary psychology. In applying evolutionary theory to the study of filicide, uh, parents murdering their own children. Friedman, Cavity, and Resnick 2012 explored the hypothesis that killing one's own children has served as an adaptive reproductive strategy for early humans, and this psychological impulse has survived as a part of the human behavioral repertoire. 
They identify the following key points regarding child murder and parents. So these are the these are the key points. Number one, most child homicides are perpetrated by their own parents, about half by mothers and half by fathers. Number two, the highest risk of child homicide is on the first day of life, and these early acting perpetrators are most often the mothers. Number three, step parents step parents kill at much higher rates than biological parents. Number four, motives from child murder include maltreatment, altruistic killing, acutely psychotic, unwanted child, and partner revenge. So this one bears a little teasing out. So when they actually look into why parents would kill their kids, either by just asking them or surmising, they determine that there are a number of different motives that will motivate a parent. Um, The first one that they said is uh, uh, maltreatment. So the parent is just not treating the child very well. Uh, The second one is altruistic killing. So I imagine what this one means is that the parents think, well, it's better that they die now because they're going to suffer or something like that for some reason. The third one here is acutely psychotic. So the parent is delusional and might believe that the, the newborn is the devil or something. And then an unwanted child. So some parents will say, well, yeah, the reason why I killed my child is because I didn't want it. And then the last one here is partner revenge. So this is when someone wants to get back at somebody. So uh, a mother or father will kill their own kids as a way of hurting a, uh, the other parent, right? So moving on with our list here. Number five, 24 nations, including the UK and Australia, have decreased penalties for mothers who kill, kill their child within the first year of life. So isn't that interesting? Many nations have decreased penalties for mothers who kill their child within the first year of life. That's interesting, right? So what these researchers are trying to point out is that as a society, we recognize that it's a little less egregious or something because it's understandable under some circumstances. I don't believe that to be true at all, but I think that's what they're saying. Um, Number six, the U.S. rate of infanticide is eight eight per 100,000, while in Canada, the rate is only three per 100,000. So apparently, according to research, the United States has a much higher rate of parents killing their own kids, which is interesting and awful. Um, so, but when you look at it, eight per 100,000. So that is an extremely low rate. That That is a... rate, meaning that uh, for each, uh, essentially for each 10,000 parents, you have one parent who kills their kid. Actually, when I word it that way, that sounds pretty bad when you think about all the parents out there. Um, 10,000 sets of parents, I should say. Number seven, despite public perception, a large percentage of child murders are committed by parents who are not seriously mental ill, mentally ill. So that's another interesting thing. You know, most people go, oh, they must be crazy, right? They must be bipolar or psychotic or massively depressed. And 
that would stand to reason if you don't know much about it, because it's like, well, how could you do that? You must, there must be something terribly wrong with you. The research shows that that's actually not, not the case that um, most are, it, you know, it's hard to lock this down, right? Because it's not like these sorts of people sign up for research studies, but um, many, if not most are, do not qualify for a serious mental illness that would cause this sort of thing. Uh, Herdy, uh, is another researcher, suggests that infanticide was an evolved reproductive strategy for early humans. If a newborn was defective or born at a time when the parents are having difficulty, the child would require unwanted cost and effort in childbearing. As a real-world example of the mothers in, in India who are hospitalized for postpartum mental illness, 43% had thought about murdering their child, and 36% had inf infanticidal behavior. So what they're saying here is, is uh, that we that these people speculate that we as humans evolved a instinct to kill our children under circumstances in which we believe that everyone's better off if we kill that child. And they point towards a study that found that um, mothers in India who were hospitalized for mental illness, 43% of them had thought about murdering their child. So it's interesting. Based on these and other observations, Friedman and Al believe mothers who suffer from postpartum depression and suicidality may murder their children as an altruistic act to prevent the child from the suffering of being abandoned if the mother commits suicide. The authors claim that evolutionary psychology helps explain differences between evolutionarily normal rationales for filicide and mental blah, blah, blah. Um, let's see. All right. Well, let's just get into my critique here. Um, my main critique of this, of this, this, these ideas has to do with the potential moral good or moral bad of its use. So the, uh, it's a fine speculation is what basically my argument is. It's like, well, okay, it's fine. We have no idea because we would have to experiment on humans and we can't do that. We're just observing humans and their behavior. And it's, it's just hard to know. And, you know, actually the statistic that, you know, the United States has a pretty high rate of people killing their kids compared to other countries, um, even third world countries sort of is refutes that speculation because the United States is the richest, most, you know, um, wealthy, most well-off country that's ever existed. Now, of course we have a income disparity, but for sure, but, uh, compared to other countries, our poorest person is a rich person. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Compared to other countries, our poorest person is like a middle-of-the-road person. And that's no joke. And I could be even being conservative with that. And yet, we still have extremely high rates of this sort of thing. And so, the evolutionary... Um, if this evolutionary instinct or such a strong factor in p parents killing their kids, then we would see these struggling societies, ha we would see a much higher rate than especially than the United States. And yet we don't. So it's just hard to say. But anyway, my main critique of these speculations is what are these people using these arguments for? 
Because again, if people are just making the speculation, okay, fine, no big deal. But a lot of times these, um, so here I go into, the author's choice of words raises questions. When Friedman et al. 2012 claimed that evolutionary psychology helps explain differences between evolutionarily normal rationales for filicide and mental abnormal filicides, are they claiming that there are only two causes for filicides, evolutionarily normal and mentally abnormal filicides. So in other words, from the article, what it appears is that they are writing this article and gathering so-called data to support it in order to defend mothers who have killed the, their child in an effort to say that the, the mother had no choice because they have, there was an instinct that they evolved. So, this is something that actually happens in forensic psychology and, and something that actually is used in courts of law where a defense lawyer. So, you know, you have a mom who killed their kid and they go to their lawyer and the lawyer starts looking for anything to defend the mother. And then you have these evolutionary psychologists that come forth and say, well, actually, you know, I would say that mothers evolved that mechanism, blah, blah, blah. And so then you can tell the jury, look, uh, it's not right what the mother did, but. As according to science, uh, we evolved a mechanism to kick in when we are uh, in a situation of stress with an instinct to kill our kids. So we shouldn't blame the mother for just acting on our natural instincts. That's what these articles are, are often being used for and I suspect have been used for. So to me, my critique of this evolutionary, this evolutionary psychology speculation uh, idea is, is like, well, if it's if it. If the speculation just sort of ends there, great. But if it's used to uh, prop up this notion that science has proven that mothers have evolved this instinct, then that's ridiculous because that's just not true. Anyone who understands evolutionary psychology for real understands that a, there's, especially with a question like this, there is no way to know what we quote unquote evolved to do. Even if you pointed to the animal kingdom, it's just like, some animals do this, some animals don't. Anyway, the point is, is that's my critique of that. All right. Well, so Patron Ash, you ask, well, why the trash? Why throw the baby in the trash? Why not just put the child anywhere else so that the child could survive? Because this, you know, report in the Washington Post was that the mother put the baby in the trash and then the baby died. It's like, why didn't she just put the baby, you know, on a at a train station or, you know, at... at in the cereal aisle of the grocery store or something, you know, someone would have done something. The answer to that is, I don't know. Um, maybe because they think it's hiding the evidence because they don't want to get in trouble because they have some sort of irrationality around getting in trouble for it. Maybe they think the baby is literally trash. They're just like, well, I don't want it. No one wants it. So I'm just going to throw it away. Um, the other thing is, is you can't, um, I, I can't imagine that the mothers in these states are rational actors. Um, you know, if they were rational, they would give the child to an adoption agency, right? It's, or they'd give some, or they'd find someone who knew someone to give to, the, you know, the that's the rational thing, you know, but they're not rational in the moment and they're probably quite desperate in my opinion. So, so let's look at why do mothers kill their unborns? Um, again, we just don't know. But um, some other research that 
we can highlight here is that they're usually young mothers and they're often teenagers. So that's something to think about. They're usually unmarried and the pregnancy is usually unwanted. And the mothers will often try to hide the pregnancy um, effectively or ineffectively. So this is a particular sort of mother, right? This is a mother who is young, who doesn't, who, you know, is like, I'm having a child out of wedlock. I, I don't want this child. I don't know what to do. I'm going to try to hide it, you know, and so they're probably ashamed of it in some level. Who knows? There's, there's, this isn't just your run of the mill mother. This is a very specific kind of situation. And, um, so to me, the following is a, the best conceptualization I can come up with based on the data and what I can imagine is true. But again, there's no way to demonstrate this because it'd be impossible to test. But the best conceptualization I have is that the mother is not well. I would suspect that the mother suffers from some sort of trauma, uh, some sort of attachment problem. The mother might even be addicted the mother might even be using at the time. The mother might have some sort of peripartum mental illness. Uh, you know, postpartum depression is no joke. And you can ha- you can start postpartum depression before the birth, so you can have peripartum depression. Anxiety, uh, you know, postpartum, peripartum, OCD is no joke uh, and can be just awful. Uh, these are intense, horrific things that happen to mothers. Mothers go through a lot, and there's all these other risks that pop up during pregnancy and after pregnancy. So I suspect that for most of these mothers, they're not doing well. As I said earlier, many of them don't qualify for a diagnosis, but I don't know if that included you know, in the research trauma reactions and attachment problems and uh, chaos issues and that kind of thing, because mainly what they're looking at is like psych- psychosis and bipolar and stuff. So I would suspect that most of the mothers are are not doing great. I would also suspect that most of the mothers lack support. I have a hard time believing that if a young mother, you know, 20 years old, was loved and felt supported and accepted and safe enough to have this pregnancy, I have a hard time believing that that mother would try to hide the pregnancy and then try to kill their own child to get out of a sticky situation. So... I suspect most of these mothers lack support for one reason or another. The other factor is that young mothers, young people, they haven't really developed into a mature adult yet. I've talked about this in other episodes, but our society, we tend to look at like, well, you're 18, you're an adult. You can smoke cigarettes, you can die at war, you can rent a car, you can buy your own place, you know, you're an adult. But we know through research and also just by observing humans that young adults are not mature. When I look at my own life, I would say that I'm still maturing. And at the age of 22, I was definitely not mature. I had matured to a, to a 22 year old level, but the thoughts that ran through my head and my, and most notably to this discussion, my morality was not mature yet. I did things in my early 20s at a time when I was considered to be completely mature and of age and an adult. I did things during that time that I am um, horrified by, mortified by, is a better word for it. 
decisions that I made that were immoral and wrong. And at the time, didn't feel immoral or wrong, or at least not enough anyway. And, uh, you know, I'm and like an example, it would be vandalism <laughs> just for fun. And now I'd just be like, oh, you know, think about the person who has to clean that up. Like that is no good. But at the time, same person, me, same background, and uh, up until that point anyway, and, you know, felt normal. Now you you couldn't pay me enough to do some of that stuff. So when you're a 22-year-old mother, it doesn't suddenly mean that you now have the maturity and morals of a 45-year-old. And you might do things that are extremely self-centered and and self-destructive, including resorting to throwing your baby in the trash when you think that it's inconvenient, which is leads me to the next conceptualization is that, um, so the mother isn't doing well, I imagine, the mother lacks support, and the mother has not developed adult morals yet, and the mother also... Um, uh, considers the child to be extremely inconvenient for one reason or another. And the mother is looking for some quick way to end the problem. And that's all that they're thinking about. Um, also, which seems pretty obvious, the mother must have never saw the child as a real human being. You know, every mother, and I guess every parent will uh, attest to this, that there's this transition, like the, the for most people anyway, like you figure out that you're pregnant and you're like, Oh, I have a human growing inside of me. Well, it's sort of a surreal thing for, for many people. It's like, well, I know intellectually I have a human growing inside of me, but I, I don't really feel like it's real yet. And you'll find people in well into their third trimester and they still kind of feel that way. It's just like, well, I still don't really, I know conceptually there's this, and I feel the baby moving around in there, but I don't, I, it just doesn't feel real to me. I just can't imagine that there's going to be a baby coming out of me and then I'm going to be able to hold this other human being and that human being is going to grow up and go to college and, you know, use Snapchat and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it feels weird. And so, so if you are resistant to the notion that you're pregnant to begin with, you might actually resist any movement towards accepting that this is a human being. And then when the child is born, you just consider it just like, like, um, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like a hangnail or something. You're just like, oh, this is a part of me that I put in the trash. Again, this is not normal behavior. It's pretty rare that it happens. And when you combine that that dehumanization to the mother really suffering, because again, I'm, I'm guessing the mother is quite suffering just without being pregnant through trauma or something else. The mother lacks support, is completely alone, is probably quite hopeless about a lot of things. The mother hasn't developed morals, and the child is some sort of inconvenient, either to their social life or to their, um, you know, goals in life or something. And you add that all together, and I, I think you raise the risk. Now, having said that, uh, many people suffer from those factors and don't even really think about I mean, not really. They don't think about harming their newborn child. So what is it? What's the difference between the millions of people who have those factors and those one or two people who actually do this sort of thing? 
you know, who knows? I, I, I wish I had the answer. And if we had the answer, we could actually predict who would do this and put a stop to it. But we don't. We only have the ability to look at these very broad uh, factors. It'd be like trying to prevent suicide by saying, well, uh, if you recently lost your job, you are more likely to kill yourself. Well, we all know, of course, that losing your job, the risk of you actually killing yourself is pretty low, but it does raise your risk a little bit, according to large statistics. So what do we do? We target everyone who loses their job with a massive dose of suicide prevention. doesn't seem like a good allocation of resources. Well, the same is true here. If you have a mother that's not doing well, um, do you, do you, you know, dump in all these resources to prevent that mother from killing their child? Uh, I don't know. But I do think that what we can do generally is really making sure as a society that we're helping young mothers um, if they need help. And I know there are programs out there, but maybe we could do better. Um, contact with that person. Uh, services. Uh, you know, free therapy, free in-home therapy, that kind of thing. And with that support, whatever problems the mother is facing, they can get some kind of help and some, some guidance around those issues, which will lead them to being less likely to go down a, a dark road of eventually killing their own child. Okay. So that's that depressing email <laughs> from Patron Ash. Let's go on to something else. Hey, look, my cat has chosen to join us. I'm trying to get her up by the microphone. She doesn't like to do that very much. <laughs> now she's loving the microphone, like the way cats do. All right, just sit there in my lap. Okay, I actually just got an email uh, 12 minutes ago. Let's just read this one. This is... An avid listener, I'll leave her name out because she didn't tell me if I could read her name. Now the cat is gone. The cat doesn't like your email, anonymous emailer. Uh, she asks, I must ask your professional opinion. This past weekend, a female friend of mine who was 58 years old, long divorced, she said something that stunned me. Uh, she has a 28-year-old son who lives with her. And my friend said to me, um, I felt just awful and stayed in bed for two days. So her friend was sick. I felt just awful and stayed in bed for two days, but it was so sweet. My son, my son stopped over and laid down with me and held me. And she goes on with her email here. Kirk, it is clearly none of my business, but I found it totally unsettling. Am I overreacting? I grew up with six brothers and two sisters. I can't imagine one of my brothers at the age of 28 cuddling up to my mother in bed. It is, not, it is not as though I can tell this woman that this is creepy because that's not my place to tell her the limits of family closeness. But I'm still creeped out, uh, blah, blah, blah. Let's see. Oh, I am still creeped out when my 44-year-old son-in-law father greets him with a kiss on the lips. And I don't believe I'm prudish. I'm actually an affectionate person. Would love to hear your thoughts on the subject. Could this be an episode in the making? Well, I'll answer it here because I'm Marie condoing all of my uh, emails so that I can wipe the slate clean and move on with my spring. 
no, it's not creepy based on your description. And I actually find our society or whatever society you're living in to be quite shaming of this sort of thing. I mean, it could be creepy, and but we have to define what creepy means. Are you, are you saying creepy like I'm uncomfortable with this? Because if that's your definition of creepy, then yeah, it's creepy to you. It's not creepy to me. But what do we mean by creepy? Uh, I think we need to be very clear what we mean by that because we're not 13-year-olds going, ew, that's creepy. We're adults and we're trying to evaluate the moral good or the advisability of a particular behavior, okay? So by creepy, I assume, which I have no idea for sure, but based on the context of your email, I assume what you're saying is this, this feels incestuous. This feels as though the son and, the, you know, the 28-year-old son and the 58-year-old mother are engaging in behavior that is sexual in nature. You don't say that out, you know, overtly, but that's basically what I think you're saying. And uh, just because a mother cuddles with her son, who's an adult, that uh, doesn't make it sexual. We tend to make that sexual, which is really destructive to our needs as humans. So there's that. Um, if we were to make it a daughter, what if it was a 28-year-old daughter who held her mother when she was sick? Is that creepy or is that less creepy to you? Uh, why do boys uh, and men not get to cuddle with their mother? You also say that your 40-year-old son-in-law's father greets him with a kiss on the lips. What if this was two women? What if it was a mom and her daughter and they kissed on the lips? Um, I kiss my mother on the lips when, when I see her. And, uh, and it, you know, I can tell you there's nothing sexual about it. <laughs> and people who read sex into such things, I have to say, it's like, wow, uh, does everything mean sex to you? Because when I greet my mom and she kisses me on the lips, it has absolutely zero to do with sexuality. I'm here to tell you. It has to do with my love between my mom and me. And people kiss, hug, hold hands, um, muss up each other's hair, shake hands, slap on the back. It's all regular, normal human activity and should not be shamed. So the answer to your question is... Um, I'm fine with it. And to you, it's creepy because to you, it's not normal, which is fine. You can have your own personal preferences however you want to have them, but um, to impose that on other people. Now, if there were other kinds of things happening, like clear signs of incestuous behavior and um, invasion of the child's or the mother's space by either party, which can happen, by the way, then by all means, let's talk about that. But based on your description, I, I see nothing wrong with that. Again, imagine if you had a 28-year-old woman uh, laid – so, you know, uh, she said, but it was so sweet. My husband stopped over and laid down with me and held me. So it's just holding somebody. You know, it's, it's not what, – what if a mother held her 10-year-old daughter when she was sick? Is that creepy? I don't think anyone would think that's creepy. Why is it creepy when an adult child holds their sick parent? Is that I don't I just don't see anything creepy about that at all. 
In fact, I probably think it's a wonderful thing. Now, I have no idea about their relationship. Maybe their relationship is super weird. I don't know. But I tend to think that physical affection is a great thing. And our American or whatever society that you you said good day at the beginning. So maybe you're in uh, Australia. I'm not sure. Anyway, so let's go on to another email. Yeah, uh, I, I don't want to make you feel bad, anonymous patron. Uh, you're probably just shooting this email off to me rather quickly uh, without thinking about it. And, you know, you're not you haven't done anything bad. You're just asking a question. So there's no, there's nothing wrong with having an emotional reaction and then asking a question. And, you know, um, but I hope that you um, hear me when I say that uh, we need to question our notions of discomfort, especially when it comes to sex and physical affection in our societies, because uh, we have a long, rich history of shaming good behavior. And when that when we do that, a lot of bad things happen, depression, anxiety, uh, uh, neglect, attachment, insecurity. I would even go so far as to say that young men will, because they were deprived of touch in their life, they resort to sexual aggression and coercion as a way of trying to get their needs met through the only method that they think is available to them. So uh, we need to do what we can as a society to stop that. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, I'm someone who has been diagnosed with major depressive disorder along with generalized anxiety and PTSD. I'm a white female in my mid-30s, and I've been in therapy pretty consistently since I was about six years old. I've been on all types of meds, mainly SSRIs. Several months ago, I began to receive ketamine infusions. The results were almost immediate. I quit smoking, which I've been doing since 13, and began to exercise six days a week, and I love it. I now get out of bed easily when the alarm goes off. But even though I feel good, it's like I don't know how to be happy. I feel like happiness is a skill that you learn during childhood, and I missed out on learning it because of my depression and some other factors. I feel good. I just don't know what to do with it. I sort of feel like I was born yesterday, honestly, and I'm having trouble adjusting to this sudden overnight change. I am in therapy and working on this, but this is new territory for my therapist, too, so I wanted to get your take on the matter. End of email. Yeah, well, it's hard for me to know without talking to you and getting a gauge on your course and the degree at which you're talking about. But yeah, in general, absolutely, you're a conceptualization could be correct, that it might be habit. Um, well, before going into that, I just want to highlight, some of you have been emailing me asking me to talk about ketamine. As I think most of you know, I'm not a prescriber, I'm not a medical professional, so I can't really speak with much authority, but I can talk about ketamine. There's some interesting research on it. it in the past, uh, I can't remember, sometimes it's referred to as like a like a horse tranquilizer, I think, at least rumored that they would use higher dosage to actually tranquilize uh, large animals. But, and it was abuse, special K, I believe it was called. But yeah, I've worked with people who are taking it and it can have some really interesting results. I've seen the results not last. So I hope for you, anonymous patron, that the results do last for you. But I had a patient who suffered from what was seemingly a very rapid cycling bipolar and would have these extreme bursts of 
extreme mood related behavior and attitudes. And then completely, it would just completely go away, uh, you know, within hours. But on ketamine, he exhibited uh, much less of, I think he actually completely took it away for a while. But then over as time went on, the ketamine didn't really work anymore. So, um, you know, it's a psychoactive drug and it seems to be helping a lot of people. So uh, I hope it, I hope you get some benefit from it. Um, along those lines, people are asking me also to talk about uh, uh, psychedelics, mushrooms, psilocybin, LSD, and microdosing as, um, you know, treating PTSD and whatnot. And maybe I'll do a longer episode about it. Again, I'm not a medical person, so I'd, I would be speaking somewhat out of my butt. But the working adjacent to psychiatry, what I can say about that is that absolutely, um, it doesn't surprise me at all, actually. When you understand the neurological, physiological basis of something like LSD, because it involves serotonin often, it makes total sense that uh, certain dosages or certain mixtures, uh, a certain regimen w- with certain treatments would absolutely help in uh, reducing or assisting in the reducing of particular mental conditions like PTSD or depression or something. So it, to some people, to a lot of people, they, there's this huge divide between illegal drugs and legal drugs. They'll be like, okay, you have... You have SSRIs like Prozac over here, and then way, way far away, you have like mushrooms and LSD and marijuana. Well, that's just a social distinction. To me, there is no distinction. They're all just substances that affect the brain in a number of different ways. And to some extent, there's not a lot of differentiation between the two. Like, for example, morphine that you'll or Percocet or Vicodin or Oxycontin you'll give to people when they have their wisdom teeth pulled, totally normal. And, but in the, you know, way far away, you have this thing called heroin and it's so dangerous. Well, heroin is the exact same thing, essentially, um, as Percocet. Heroin is just sold in the street and Percocet is sold to you by your pharmacy. So, and people who abuse opiates and opioids will attest to that. Uh, you know, now there are some slight differences, but they're essentially the same. Um, so, yeah, the issue of psilocybin, LSD, helping people uh, makes total sense. Now, s- some of the news reports are coming out and I've seen them on Reddit saying that, uh, you know, LSD is going to end PTSD. You know, they're not saying that exactly, but that's the that's the thing they're trying to communicate. You know, scientists, you know, and they make it seem like, oh, these rebel scientists are looking at LSD and they're going to cure the world. And it's like, no, like uh, it'll it'll just be added to the list of possible things that can be prescribed to people and will probably have similar uh, success rates as other sorts of treatments. Um, Now, I could be wrong. We'll see uh, because we it's hard to know because the government makes it difficult for us to research this sort of thing um, and society does too so sometimes it's hard to know but from the research I've seen there's some promise and what I imagine will happen is in 20 or 30 years by that point anyway psychiatrists will have yet another tool available to them but it's not going to revolutionize the human race 
Um, okay. Having said that, it could revolutionary, revolutionize some humans for sure. And the way that ketamine, uh, once it started to be used more frequently, it, for some people, absolutely changed their life. In the same way that when Prozac came on the market and other SSRIs, for some people, it completely changed their life. It was a, it was a miracle drug for some people. I mean, I know people who chronically take SSRIs, and they know that without it, their life would be in shambles. And they take it all the time for 10 years straight. And they occasionally will try to get off it, and it's awful. And so um, so each, each of the drugs that we sell, there's someone out there that's like, this is perfect for me. So you ask, I started taking ketamine infusions and I feel great and I have energy and I'm not depressed anymore and I quit smoking and I started exercising and I get out of bed in the morning and I'm so happy for you anonymous patron that is fantastic you deserve it sounds like you've been suffering for a long time and you also say that you uh, feel like you don't know how to be happy because you have this habit of being sad yeah absolutely it could be a habit when you are in a certain chronic mood you develop this chronic attitude or approach to life and your neurons chronically fire in a particular way. And once that mood has shifted, it might actually take a bit of time for those habits to change. You know, like just as an example, I don't know if this is true for you, anonymous patron, but someone could ask you, hey, would you like to go to this party? And you might habitually just say, nah, you know, because you know that you're not going to want to go at the moment, you know, when the, when the date of the party comes along, you're not going to want to leave the house or, and, or you're going to feel so um, low self-esteem or whatever that you're going to be like, ah, I shouldn't go. Well, it might be that when people invite you to do things, you're just like, nah, even though you're like, well, wait a second, maybe I now I'm in a position where I might actually enjoy that. I don't know. Will I enjoy it? And so there's just all these things that you have to change, which is a good problem to have, I just have to say. So yeah, it could be habit. The other thing is you could still be a little depressed. I know you're doing a lot better in relation to before, but you actually might still have retained some mild depression. And uh, that wouldn't be unheard of. And it's not a black or white thing. You know, there's not... There's not those who are not depressed and those who are depressed. You know, there's a, there's a, and they're never the twain cell meet. There's a spectrum, right? Another thing that I thought of, the, so this is the most likely thing, honestly, given your description, is you're probably just experiencing the normal balance and mood that, every, that all non-depressed people experience. In that you have energy sometimes, at other times you don't. And you're happy sometimes, and other times you're a bit confused. Everyone's pretty much like that. <laughs> no one's like, yay, I am happy all the time. I am having a great life. I don't know anyone who is like that. And anyone who is like that on the surface, usually just below that veil of happiness is a deeply sad person. So um, people suffer, and sadness is rational. And suffering is just a thing. So there you go. Um, but yeah, as I said, to answer your question, could be habitual thinking that will take time to break. This is one of the reasons why placebo works. You know, when we give people sugar pills and tell them that it's an antidepressant, uh, a good number of those people will actually experience a reduction in symptoms or a complete relapse in their depressive disorder. 
and we will ask ourselves why. Well, we just can speculate. But one of the speculations is that when you believe that something is going to work, it works. In other words, you, you, you have hope for the future. And so you actually start acting as if. So if, if I give you a pill and tell you that, and actually not to burst your bubble, but your ketamine could actually be doing this to you. That's <laughs> not likely given that you've taken other meds, but who knows? But, uh, and there's actually some evidence that this is how SSRIs work to some extent. Cause we tend to see SSRIs as like, Oh, it's a happy pill. You know, Prozac makes you happy. And when you actually look at the physiology of it and the research, it actually doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. I won't go into the de- details on the brain science, but it has to do with like, um, upregulation of sero, certain transmitters and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, and downregulation. But um, where was I? Oh, yeah, placebo. So you believe it's going to work. You're hopeful. And then you wake up that morning. And you're like, okay, I am hopeful. I am sure this is working. Well, what do non-depressed people do? Well, they get up fast. Well, they go exercise. Well, they, you know, think happy thoughts, you know. And by doing all those things, acting as if you are not depressed, it actually can make you less depressed. Now, this isn't to say that when you're depressed, all you have to do is think positively, uh, because, of course, every depressed person would simply do that because they're pretty desperate to not be depressed. That's not how it works. But I hope you get my meaning. All right, let's go on to another email. Actually, no, I lied. Let's uh, take a break first. All right, we're back from the break. Since this is just me, I will bother everyone with a bunch of little stuff here. If you don't want to hear it, skip forward a couple of minutes. I don't know. We have on June 1, 2019, a new tier system coming up on Patreon. Patreon. So if you want to become a patron and you're not a patron yet, you might want to become a patron before June 1, 2019, because once that date happens, then all of the tiers are going to become more expensive. So if you care about such things, become a patron now. Go to patreon.com. The main thing is you get access to all of our best episodes, which are only available for patrons. Uh, the new tiers are going – uh, the tiers now are the 5, 20, and 35. With 5, you get stickers. 20, you get mugs and stickers. And 35, you get mugs, sticker, and one hour of consultation with me. Uh, at June 1, we're going to bump everything up. So 5 is going to just be normal and 10 is going to be stickers. 25 is going to be mugs. And 45 is going to be one hour of consultation. Also, email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com for all of your needs. The, for people out there, if you, I'm getting, the podcast is becoming more and more popular. And uh, my wife, Stacy, is starting to do more on social media. And we're starting to get a lot of, uh, options on how to contact me and people will email, will message, you know, the psychology in Seattle Facebook page as if like th- that's me or something. And it's not, I don't, I don't really check that. So there are really only two ways I want you to email me there, I want you to email me at contact at psychology Just, that's just me direct. The other way is to go to the website and fill out the, f- the contact us form, because actually that's a great way to con that's the best way honestly because it makes sure it that that whole form asks you all these questions like what's your pronoun how do you want me to refer to you is it so is it okay to read this on the podcast are you a patron all that kind of stuff and so go to the website use the contact us page that's that's the best please don't contact me through twitter or facebook or 
page, even Patreon, honestly, pa- the Patreon message system is really clunky, real buggy, actually, and takes a long time to load. Sometimes it, it takes like a few minutes to load. It's ridiculous. So don't do that. <laughs> um, contact me either. Again, contact us page on our website, psychologyandstyle.com, or just email me at contact at psychologyandstyle.com. Uh, I, as you know, respond to your emails all the time. Uh, so do that. And actually, at some point, I think I might even just stop uh, uh, responding to other m- methods because it's just it's too, we're starting a discord now, too. And so uh, there's just too many places, um, not because I'm being a stickler, because I, I just literally don't have the hours of the day to, to open up all these things and look at them. And some of them I actually have trouble managing, like on on Instagram, sometimes I'm like, wait, how do I respond to this? And can I respond to this? Um, now, if you want to comment, go for it. You know, you want to do all kinds of stuff. But at some point, I might just kind of stop responding to those things. I want people to email me. Plus, I am just a little behind the curtains is, as I am right now, I sit at my desk in my office. I have a nice big desk with a nice mouse and a nice keyboard, a nice humongous screen. And I have my coffee and my water and my phone and my, you know, all my little things. And it is so, so easy for me to respond to you using my desktop computer because it's all very comfortable. I have my nice big keyboard and whatnot um, to try to type a response on my phone to a Instagram something or other or a whatever. Uh, I, I get so aggravated. I, I still... I'm one of those people, I don't use my thumbs. I use, I use one finger when I'm texting people on my phone. <laughs> to give you an idea of how old I am. And, I mean, I feel like I'm pretty tech savvy. I mean, I am half Asian, for crying out loud, and I do live in Seattle. But um, I cannot, for some reason, text. You know how normal people, they text with their two thumbs? I, I can't do that. And don't ask me to, and I'm not going to learn. So stop asking me to. No one's asking you to, Kirk. Shut up. Um, so if you're having trouble with the premium feed, email me cause I can help you. A lot of people suffer in silence. They're like, I can't access the premium feed. The other thing is understand that there are three ways to access the premium episodes. Uh, one is through Patreon, which is mildly convenient for very new episodes. You can subscribe on to the premium feed on your phone, which is pretty convenient, but it only has the, the most recent episodes. Uh, sometimes it has all of them and sometimes it doesn't depending on the app. The best place to go is the website uh, because especially because all the, all the episodes are categorized and the best episodes are the premium episodes. And there's two pages called patron apps, patron episodes that house all the uh, deep dives and all that kind of stuff. So if you go there, I find that to be very convenient. And you can go there on your phone and listen to episodes while you're on your phone, just the way it would be in a normal situation. So that is me educating you on that. Okay, let's go to another email. And someone literally just emailed me two seconds ago, patron Gina, asking for the instructions on how to access the premium episodes. She emailed me, which is fantastic, and it's very easy for me to help her out on how to access the premium episodes. Okay, this next email is from patron Riley. She asks, 
I've been reading about Japanese psychotherapy, specifically Morita therapy. Morita therapy. I've been loaned some cli- I've I've even loaned some clients a book called Constructive Living before. It's a niche it's a niche discipline, but I'd be excited to hear about it on your show with your analysis. Surely there's something surely there's someone practicing knowledgeable about it in Seattle. Uh, that's the end of the email. Uh, it's interesting. I don't know of anyone in my community who n- knows a lot about it. I'm guessing there's someone out there in Seattle, but I don't know. As a Japanese person myself, I know a little bit about it just because I've been interested. But I will say as a caveat, I'm not an expert on this and or even Japanese culture. I'm fourth generation, meaning that my ancestors came over 120 years ago. And my Japanese dad, for example, is third generation. He doesn't speak Japanese. So I'm pretty Americanized. I definitely have retained some quote-unquote Japanese culture. But uh, anyway, so I don't know. Is And I'm not uh, – and I'm answering emails right now. So I, I, I feel like I just want to answer it briefly. So I'll say this. I did look into it a long time ago. I can't remember exactly why. And I don't, and I, and Marita therapy sounds the little bit I just read. It's, it's similar to another form of therapy that I looked into 20 years ago or something. And essentially the way that it goes is there will be someone who will be suffering from depression or anxiety or something. It's usually not something like PTSD or um, schizophrenia or something. It's usually something common like depression or anxiety. And they will be having all these symptoms and they'll be suffering and they will be unable to work and this kind of thing. And then they go to this center and, and the, it's an inpatient center. And so what they do is they take the person and the, the patient and they put them in a tatami room, a very traditional Japanese room. And you might have seen it in the movies or something. And the only thing they have in the room is a futon. It's just a bed on the ground, mattress on the ground. And they give them a broom so they can clean the room if they want to. And they sit in that room for 24-7. And the practitioner, the therapist, will visit with the client for like five minutes in the morning. And that's it. And what happens is the person at first kind of just they like it they're like oh i can just let go i don't have to think about anything i'm shut off from the world there i don't have any responsibilities i don't have any one yelling at me the noise of the city isn't getting to me i'm here in this peaceful quiet place and i i just can lay here and just stare at the ceiling and relax to me that sounds like a nightmare because I'd get bored out of my mind. I'd want at least something to do, like solitaire or something. But anyway, they do that and then eventually over time and there's a little bit of they they might start increasing the contact with a the therapist a little bit more and more each day just to talk about how they're feeling and everything. But it's very non-confrontational. It's very non-action oriented. It's very passive. It's a very passive form of therapy. And then as time goes on, the individual, say day five or six, they start actually missing the world. They miss their job. They miss their family. They miss society. They miss the noise of the city. But they're not really quite there yet. Then you give them a few more days and they really miss the world and they're bored. 
And they're just like, man, at first I thought this was great because I was protected from all the stress. But at the time goes on, I just think this is awful. I just I have nothing to do. Yeah, sure, the outside world is stressful, but at least it's it's living. At least it has interesting things in it. I want back in the world. Let me at it. And then the practitioner lets them back into the world, and they have a new perspective and a new energy to approach all of life's difficulties in their anxiety or depression or so-called anxiety, so-called depression is gone. And I remember studying that and thinking like, wow, that is very different than any form of therapy in the United States. We don't even consider such a thing. No one would think about such a thing. It doesn't make any sense. But it is very Japanese in a lot of ways. Um, It's Japanese in that the individual isn't um, shamed in any way or have to endure some sort of stigma around mental health. They're They're just on vacation, essentially. Also, it um, helps people to face sort of the complex society that Japan can often be um, in the same way the United States can be very complex. Um, So I think Morita therapy is akin to that. I think that Japan, for whatever reason, well, not for whatever reason, but for cultural reasons, has developed a tradition of helping that involves a very different line of thinking. Uh, one that involves that results in this kind of therapy, but also uh, with Morita therapy, a sort of acceptance. So in that therapy model that I told you about, one way you can look at it is that the patient is through experience, basically forced to accept the world the way that it is. And as they go back into the world, they're just like, look, I accept the world as it is, and I'm going to lean into the world. And Morita therapy involves that too. It's a matter of not trying to fight against society. You know, you're, you're a stressed out businessman and you're just like, I have all these deadlines and everyone's asking me to do all these things. And I don't have enough time. This is, this is bullshit. And, and I, I don't feel fulfilled and I, I feel scared and I, I feel like I don't have motivation. And I procrastinate and, and I get upset at my wife sometimes. And I, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of struggle. Well, with me Marita therapy, the idea, part of it is like, you don't, you can't change any of that stuff. You can't change the fact that the world is stressful. You can't change the fact that you are in a bad mood. Sometimes you can't change the fact that you have conflict. Sometimes you can't change the fact that you have to work. Sometimes what you can change is your attitude towards it and your acceptance of it. And once you stop fighting with that reality and you accept it, then you can begin to actually feel better and actually maybe do something about it. Um, acceptance commitment therapy has to do with this as well. So that's what I'll say about that. Before I start talking out of my ass, patron Riley, um, that's all I have to say about that. Um, So the highlights are Japan is very interesting and our American culture is particular to us and our American notion of mental health and mental illness and how to help people with their mental conditions is particular to us. We think of ourselves as like developing a universal treatment the way that penicillin works all over the world. doesn't matter what culture you're in, penicillin works, right? Well, we tend to think of psychotherapy in the same way, but it's not. Psychotherapy is a way to treat Americans and societies that lend themselves to psychotherapy. And there are people in in the United States who actually are excluded from that, who actually probably psychotherapy isn't the best mode for them, or at least the way that it's typically done. 
And so we just have to really think about that, not only to better help the people in our communities, but also just to maybe expand our mind and say, like, I wonder what else we're not doing. Because maybe Marita therapy and other Japanese-oriented therapies, maybe there's something to that. Maybe we could do something like that. Like, imagine if uh, this was, if you did some research studies, actually found this to be very effective. It, 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 wouldn't, it would be relatively cheap, right? You, 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 would, you could even do it in their own home. You could just go to their house, take everything out of, of one room, um, make sure it was soundproof, make sure that there's no TV and, and no one can go in there. And you just say, I need you to, I just need you to stay here and don't go on the internet. And sure, you can have a video game, like you could have an Xbox or something or this Nintendo DS or something. But you're just going to stay here, and I'm going to come check on you every now and then. Every day I'm going to come here, and I'm going to see how you're doing. But I need you to stay here and just just relax, take deep breaths. But I'm not going to tell you what to do. I just want you to just take a, just take a break. And then, you know, by day five or six, imagine what you might, uh, what you might discover, you know. Um, I have talked – I did an episode called Rite of Passage uh, Therapy, if it's an old episode – eight years ago or seven years ago. It's a pretty good episode with a former student of mine, Pat Paul Abadili. And what he does is he does basically a version of this with people, wilderness therapy uh, thing where he will get young people into the wilderness and he will um, put the, put the young people in a random spot in the wilderness somewhere. And they sit in that one spot for like three or four days without, and every day Paul will go up to him and say, how you doing? And they're like, yeah, I'm fine. And okay, I'll see you tomorrow. And then the person is just supposed to stay in that general vicinity, like within a few hundred feet and they sleep there. And they, and the other thing, they have no food. So they fast, they have water, but they have no food. They have no video game. They have no cell phone. And they just sit there in the wilderness for like three or four days with no food, and all they have to do is just think. Imagine the self-discovery you would go through during that time. I mean, I can't imagine it. I, it, it boggles the brain. I, can, I go to the line in, at the grocery store, and if I have to just stand there for like five minutes, I don't know what to do, about, do with myself. <laughs> I'm like... Um, I'm like, I'm so bored. What do I, you know? So uh, now, of course, some of you out there diagnosing me and that's fine. You can do that. Um, I'm diagnosable. And so there are some forms of this going on in the United States, but they're extremely limited. And uh, plus this involves going into the wilderness and paying lots of money and blah, blah, blah. I wonder what we could do if we actually did stuff like this. Um, on a smaller scale. You know, it's, it's an interesting thought to think of. Thanks for raising that question, Patron Riley. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. They write, or she writes, could you talk about leaving abusive relationships and why it's so hard and maybe offer some, vi- some advice on how to go about it? Also, I was wondering if you could go over what a healthy relationship should look like. I've never had a healthy relationship, and it's incredibly hard to discern healthy from less abusive. I'm currently in an abusive relationship, and I find it extremely hard to break away. When I think about what I'm afraid of, I realize that this person is such a big part of my life and most of my support system. 
I am overly, I am overly reliant on him for a lot of things. He cares about me more than anyone else in my life has, but he also hurts me more than, than most people in my life do. He currently knows me better than anyone else, and, and I'm afraid of losing that and not having anyone else in my life that understands me. I'm currently in the, proce- in the process of attempting to end the relationship, but he is begging me to stay and says that he will do anything to make me stay. I think I'm afraid of hurting him, partly because I know how bad that feels, but also because I can't take the thought of him hating me and turning his back on me. I can't really decide if I can't break it off because I'm too afraid or if it's because I am putting his feelings before my own and I can't choose myself. Healthy behavior can make me feel like the person doesn't really love or care about me. So sometimes it's hard for me to understand what the difference between healthy behavior and um, and not. And I think that uh, might be another reason why I can't get out of the pattern I'm in. I walk away from normal guys because I assume that they are not invested enough. He will never, uh, so then she goes on to talk about some of his abusive behaviors. He will never take no for an answer when it comes to sex. And then when I say I don't want to, and that I should be able to say no to him, he says I am misperceiving the situation and that he's not like the guys from my past who were more abusive. Then he gets upset with me because he can't do anything without triggering me, quote unquote. And then I feel guilty and we end up having sex. It's very confusing. And then he gets into my head and she, she, she goes on from there. But anyway, I hope you, know, you get the picture. So what can I say about this? Well, the first thing I'll say, you know, because you're saying, how do you get out of a relationship? It, it's so hard. Well, I'm here to tell you it's hard to end any relationship like this, any long-term romantic relationship. It's hard unless you're a psychopath. It's very hard. Uh, people will come to me and talk for years about a relationship that they are 100% sure that they want to leave. And it'll take them five years to eventually pull the trigger on it. It just takes a long time. It's normal. Um, and I even talk with them about this. Like the, the, a lot of times people will come into therapy trying to figure out whether or not they should get a divorce or not. And although most of my clients end up deciding that they're not going to get a divorce, some of them do. And so they'll be talking to me and they'll be like, yeah, so I, you know, we've been talking about this a long time and I vacillate back and forth. I'm a hundred percent sure that I want a divorce now. And I, I just, you know, what do I do? Well, the first thing I say is, well, I mean, not the first thing, but one of the things I'll say to them is, well, at this point, this is how you really feel. And you're very sure of yourself. And maybe this means that within the next month or so, uh, things are going to start happening where divorce is actually certain. And so maybe this is truly the beginning of the end of your relationship with your spouse. Another possibility is that this is how you feel right now. And even though you felt this way a long time, maybe this feeling will alter uh, in the next weeks. Maybe you'll even get back together with your spouse. I don't know. I don't have any vested interest in whatever you decide to do, and I'll support whatever you do. But I want to tell you that in my experience with clients in this state, they will vacillate from being 100% sure uh, for a few weeks or even a few months or even a few years to being less sure and and even having a complete turnaround. I've had people say they're 100% sure they wanted to leave. And then a year later, they're 100% sure that they want to spend the rest of their life with that person. And I don't consider it to be a dysfunctional decision. So just be ready for there to be some vacillation 
uh, before you can figure out really what you want to do. And so just allow yourself that space. The reason why I tell my clients this is for two reasons. One, I, I want them to be realistic about their own ability to know exactly what they want in a given moment. Because when you act as if you are certain and then a week later you change your mind, then um, you know you can end up doing a lot of bad things. The other thing is, is I want my client to know that when they change their mind, because they often do, that I'm not going to shame them. You know, if they come into the next session, I'm like, um, so you know how last time I said I was 100% sure I wanted to leave? Well, now I'm not so sure anymore. So I want to tell them, look, if you vacillate, not only will I not shame you, but I'll, I'll just be like, yeah, par for the course. It's totally normal. So it takes a long time for anyone, whether they're in an abusive relationship or not, to actually leave their partner. Uh, and you named a lot of the reasons why people, regardless of the, of the sort of relationship they're in, you named a lot of the reason, reasons why they don't leave. Because you feel bad. You just feel bad. You feel you don't want to hurt him. You're confused a lot of times. You're worried you won't find someone better. You don't want to lose the love that you have with him. That's an important thing. And to those people out there who don't understand, you know, who yell at, at and victim shame, like, why don't you leave your husband? You know, people who yell at Michael Jackson's victims and yell at the mothers of the victims are like, you know, how could you do this? It's like, look, if you're not in that situation, you cannot throw the first stone. You do not know what it's like to be seduced by someone. It is extremely, when people are good at it, it's very effective. And since this happens so often in our society, you just have to figure, oh, just because I can't relate to it doesn't mean that it wouldn't have happened to me too. So just, you know, it's all cool our jets. So uh, when abusive people stay with their abusive, when abused people stay with their abusive partners, some of the times they stay because they actually still love that person. They still love their abusive spouse, which might seem like sick to you or Stockholm syndrome to you, which is possible. But it's also possible to love someone who is abusive. It absolutely is possible. And so particularly if you grew up with a lot of abuse in your life, because it's just normalized. But anyway, so, you you know, you also say you didn't want to lose the love and the bond that you have. You're worried that you'll never have another relationship that is this close. And um, this is all normal. So whether or not you're in a domestic violence or an intimate partner violence relationship, abusive relationship or not, those are all normal things. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, you have a compounding issue that makes it even harder for you to get out. Um, you have self-esteem issues to begin with, and he's eroding your self-esteem by abusing you and getting into your head. Um, you've also been isolated from other people for various reasons. Him one of the, is one of the reasons. And so that's a compounding factor that makes it hard for, for you to leave. And he's also uh, reacting in a scary way. You're not really saying this explicitly, but when abusive people get angry, there's this worry usually that they're going to do something sudden and horrible, either to themselves or to you. And so uh, all that makes it particularly hard for someone in an abusive relationship to leave. And so the answer 
is not how do I have the willpower, because we all know that that doesn't make any sense. There's, there's no amount of willpower that will get you out of this. What, what you need is a system. And by system, I mean a group of people that are with you, human beings, uh, support people that you can find, friends, family, that kind of thing, and therapists and domestic violence advocates. Um, you know, you need that. Uh, people who are leaving, like I said, a non-abusive relationship, they need that too, but you particularly need it. So get yourself into therapy and start talking with a domestic violence advocate. Call 1-800-799-7233. This is the National DV Hotline. Again, 1-800-799-7233. Call that number and they can help you anonymously. Uh, maybe they, you don't uh, get hooked up right away, but as time goes on, uh, the, you can start saying, okay, I think I'm ready to take action. I want to meet in person with a domestic violence, a domestic violence advocate. And then that advocate will know, will have re, they'll have resources, they'll have safe houses for you, they can even be there with you or get other people to be with you when you decide to break up with him so that if he does do anything horrible, there's other people there to help you out. Uh, there might even be funds to set you up with, uh, you know, a job or whatever it is that you need. You know, there's lots of things that are out there because you deserve that. Okay. And no one should stay in a relationship that they don't want to be in, particularly if the, one of the reasons is because they're being abused and their self-esteem is eroding and, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, Yeah. Now, having said that, con, you know, conceptually, I, I am imagining that your husband or boyfriend is also suffering quite a bit as well. And so he should get treatment. And so I would encourage him through this process. Once you get your team together, I would go to him and say, I really think you should be talking to a therapist or, or if you know one of his close friends or something, maybe have them on hand so that they can take care of him. That might also make you feel better about saying goodbye because you know that other people know to take care of him after you leave. Um, so, yeah, you deserve to, to leave. Um, the You also ask, like, what does a healthy relationship look like? That is a very difficult thing to summarize. But in general, when people are at their best, which should be pretty easy to achieve, fairly easy to achieve, um, non-triggered, shall I say. They can listen to each other and value the other person's feelings. Um, like, for instance, the story you told about not wanting to have sex. Well, a healthy relationship, a healthy uh, partner, so they're like, hey, let's have sex, and you're just like, nah, I'm not really into it. That The person who was rejected, well, well let me back up. <laughs> So you have a routine sexually with this person that sometimes involves having sex and sometimes doesn't. And so he comes to you and he's like, so let's have sex. And, and you're just like, honey, I love you. I'm just really tired and I'm, I'm not in the mood. I, I think you're a sexy, wonderful person. Um, could we just maybe cuddle in front of the TV? Because that's kind of all of the energy I have today. And uh, that kind of rejection is better than just saying no 
I'm tired or something, or, or just ignoring and rolling over or something, or saying something like, um, I have, I had an appointment today, so I couldn't do it. Like you want to let people down easy because for people to ask for sex, it's actually quite vulnerable. So it's important to take care of them. You don't have to do it. Um, of course, and you shouldn't have sex when you don't want to, uh, for your own self-esteem reasons and your own boundary, uh, justification, but you should let the other person down easy. Okay. So in that moment, your husband or boyfriend is being rejected and he's hurt, uh, in all likelihood, but he takes responsibility and says, okay, well, that's a bummer. Um, I feel hurt. I'm disappointed, but my wife doesn't want to have sex with me. So I'm not going to pressure her. Cause why would I do that? Why would I want to have sex with someone who doesn't want to have sex in that moment? Um, I'm sure that my wife will eventually want to have sex with me because she loves me and it's just a matter of time. Um, so this isn't the end of our sex life. The world isn't coming to an end. Um, I could say, oh, okay, cool. You know, um, well, how about tomorrow or, um, how about you let me know when you're ready to go for it or whatever. Um, or, and, or, you know what? I think cuddling is even a better option because I, I wanted to watch this new TV or what TV show or whatever. So there's, that's what a healthy relationship looks like. Now, uh, that's not the only way a healthy relationship looks like, but that's to demonstrate in a very short amount of time, um, the emotional and differentiated process of a healthy relationship. That's, that's one way of describing it anyway. Okay. This next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, I recently read a book that was, that had a hypothesis that ADHD can result from a highly sensitive person not being adequately attached to their caregiver. The authors claim that attachment enables the proper development of the brain pathways responsible for executive functioning and the avoidance of ADHD. The reason this intrigues me is that I was adopted and had many other issues that likely interfered with my attachment process. I'd like to know if there's any evidence that attachment issues can play a role in executive functioning. End of email. Yeah, absolutely. There's an, there's an association. Attachment insecurity and issues that commonly cause attachment injuries like, like adoption or uh, abandonment or mistreatment are associated with uh, executive function issues and ADHD. So there's absolutely a, an association. But as I often talk about, it's hard to know exactly what's going on because we don't really understand the brain very well. But the theory goes, according to me anyway, is that as the brain is developing early throughout our childhood, because our executive function develops up until we're in our 20s. So, but it's particularly developing when we're young. And as the brain is developing, let's say that the child is really stressed out because the child is uh, not feeling very secure in the world. They're, they're having a lot of, you know, one of the hallmarks of good attachment parenting is that the, the parent notices the child's emotional state and responds well to it. And when you are raised badly or you have particular problems that sort of interfere or sort of make your issues even bigger as a child, that can make it so that you experience the world in this chronically emotionally negative space. And so in that space, and you start actually building opinions about other people and yourself, like 
am I bad? Is the world bad? And so you don't really have a lot of resources or time to uh, relax and allow your brain to develop normally. And as I said, the executive function process is still developing well into our 20s. And so if you have this chronic stress and chronic preoccupation with other things, then that can absolutely interfere with the development. That's, that's my hypothesis anyway. Um, you know, for example, when you have attachment disruptions, that does not interfere with a lot of different brain processes that have already developed prior to developing your attachment style and attachment um, sort of situation, like our, autom- our autonomic breathing apparatus in our brain. You know, the, the, our brain regulates our breathing and our heart rate and stuff. And, and when you have attachment disruptions, that it doesn't interfere with that because we've already developed that very early in life. Um, so because certain things are still developing, anything that, inter- that sort of causes a lot of stress to the brain, like attachment problems, uh, in my estimation, could absolutely affect the, de- the development of it. The other thing to think about is that attachment reactivity, attachment insecurity can look like executive problems like ADHD. For example, let's say someone is, uh, someone, a child develops avoidant attachment style. And for a full discussion on all this stuff, listen to my 17 hours on attachment theory that I did a little bit ago. You have to become a patron of the podcast to listen to that. So when someone is uh, chronically neglected and their parents aren't attuned, their parents aren't noticing and or reacting well to the child's emotional state, the child will eventually learn, oh, well, I need to, I can't really depend on the world. And so I'm not even going to pay attention to the world. I'm just going to be in my own world. And so I'm going to turn off the world. Well, that was adaptive in, you know, they were young because they needed to do that to cope with whatever was happening with their parents. Well, you put that child as an eight-year-old in class and their neurons have developed in such a way where they just sort of have shut themselves off from the world. Now, maybe their executive function is actually working fine, but neurologically speaking, but because they've shut themselves off from the world, they don't pay attention to the teacher very much. You know, when a teacher is in front of the class a major thing that the teacher depends on is that the kids care about what the teacher is doing. You know, regular kids and perhaps preoccupied kids are really focused on the teacher. They're really just like, okay, what's the teacher doing? I hope I get the teacher's approval. Does the teacher love me? You know, what's, what's the teacher going to teach me today? Well, if you learned at the age of 18 months that it was actually harmful to your soul to pay attention to adults because when you did so, it actually hurt you. Neurologically speaking, it's actually impossible for you to pay attention to those kinds of things. So you sit that kid down in class in eighth grade and they actually can't pay attention to the teacher very well because of their avoidant attachment. Um, Avoidant attachment people also have trouble with memory because again, when you develop avoidant attachment, you also learn that it's easier if you just forget things because it, it doesn't do you any good to remember these bad things that are happening. And so it's just, ah, it's just good to forget and also to not encode memory. Well, that can also look like ADHD. ADHD, executive function 
which ADHD is a neurological condition, right? Similar to a brain injury or a stroke or something. You know, there's something, there's something wrong with the physiology of the brain that results in executive function disorders like ADHD. And so when an avoidant person, but an avoidant situation is also a neurological thing, of course, but it's, we wouldn't conceptualize it in the same way that we would executive function problems. And so ADHD people have problems with memory. Avoidant people have problems with memory. ADHD problem, ADHD people have trouble paying attention. And avoidant people have trouble paying attention uh, to teachers. Now, a avoidant kid will have no problem paying attention to things that have to do with their things they're interested in, like maybe a video game or um, something in front of them that they like to do. Uh, and ADHD people sometimes don't have a problem with that either. But anyway, so you can see how avoiding attachment and other attachment insecurities can actually look like ADHD, even though it isn't. And I actually see this all the time in my supervisees' kids. My supervisees, a lot of them work in mental health agencies in the community. And it's extremely popular for these kids to have been diagnosed with ADHD. And for various reasons that I won't go into, but one of the reasons is that the teachers actually just see everything. A lot of teachers see everything as ADHD. It's like, oh, this kid isn't doing well in school, ADHD. And the school can have tremendous power because they can affect the psychiatrist, they can affect the parents, they can affect the kid, which makes sense. The kid's in school for six hours plus a day. So, you know, it stands to reason that they have power. They should have some power. But they're not diagnosticians. <laughs> That's the thing. And so uh, I see this a lot. And uh, the my supervisee will say, well, they've been diagnosed with ADHD. And I'll be like, okay, well, let's walk ourselves through this. And then they'll proceed to tell me, okay, this kid was in a foster home from the age of two to four. This kid was abused sexually from the age of four to six. And this kid has lived with their grandparents and their grandparents died. And I'm like, okay, so how do we know if this is an actual case of ADHD, which we could almost, we could almost consider a biological condition. Uh, it's, I mean, in terms of genetic, like you're born with the precursors to it and that kind of thing. Um, how do we know that it's it, the difference between ADHD or this person has, is having trouble paying attention and is acting out in school because they have self-esteem issues and they're preoccupied with stress in life and their attachment issues are challenged and their attachment with this, the, the teacher and the other students, you know, there's all these stresses in their life that are so preoccupying their mind that they can't concentrate in school. We can all relate to this, right? Let's say that you are a, an accountant and your mother is dying in the hospital and you go to work and you have to pay attention to numbers and Excel spreadsheets and credits and, you know, debits and stuff. And uh, you know, start noticing that your mind is wandering and that you're not really on task and that it's hard for you to, you like do a couple steps. You're like, Oh wait, what am I doing? And you have to go back we would all understand that that would be reasonable, right? Well, what would a, what's different about a seven-year-old who's been through hell and back and having trouble in school? Why do we just go to ADHD? Why don't we also think about trauma, systemic issues, you know, family systems issues, 
stress issues, um, self-esteem. Like, why aren't we thinking about that? It, it boggles the mind. And, you know, just giving someone Ritalin is not going to erase seven years of neglect and abuse. So let's, you know, wake up here. As I get upset about it, <laughs> as you can tell. All right. Well, that's as good a place as any to end. So let's just end there. I managed to get to another five pages of emails there or something. We'll see if I can get rid of all of them this spring. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Again, if you want to contact us, email us at contact.psychologyinseattle.com or go to the website and use the contact us page. Those are the best places to contact me. So do that now if you have any feedback. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Mm